Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I am not Justin Burke. I'm Chris the Chimanchu, and I'm joined by my two fantastic co-hosts. I have Dr. Jessica Hain and Dr. Edward Cordy. Hi, say hi, guys. Hey. Hey there. Our guest today is Dr. Josh Sharfstein on this very special episode. This is a follow-up to our Back to School special from last year. But first, Jess is going to remind us what this show is about. We are the pediatric medicine podcast. We interview leading experts in the field to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core and hot topics in pediatric medicine. And we have a fantastic conversation tonight with our guest, Dr. Joshua Sharfstein. He's the director of the Bloomberg American Health Initiative, vice dean for public health practice and community engagement, and professor of the practice in health policy and management at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Previously, Dr. Sharfstein served as the Secretary of Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, as Principal Deputy Commissioner of the U.S. FDA, and as Commissioner of Health for Baltimore City. He is the author of The Public Health Crisis Survival Guide, Leadership and Management in Trying Times. And we had a great conversation today. We talked about a wide range of topics from keeping kids safe in school to connecting with parents on a personal level about vaccination to the actual process that goes into uh, vaccine approval. I think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. The FDA did not approve what we're talking about, but I think everyone else will. Dr. Sharfstein, thank you for coming back to visit us. Well, thanks so much for having me back. I wish the situation were better. <laughs> I know, I know. Edward here has helped to put together another great script for us to, to talk about and hopefully just as, as a jumping point to talk about where we are. Before we get going, Dr. Sharfstein, is it okay we, we call you Josh? Absolutely. All right. So, so Josh, um, sort of to remind people, you were on our COVID back-to-school episode at the middle of last year before school started, and we're sort of at the beginning of school starting this year, and we thought it would be a great time to sort of have an update, talk a little bit about what's happened and where we might be going, especially with your interests and your, your specialty. Do you want to remind our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm, I'm a pediatrician, uh, but most of my career has been in the public sector and public health I worked as a health policy advisor on Capitol Hill for Congressman Henry Waxman, and then I uh, was the health commissioner for the city of Baltimore, the principal deputy commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, and the health secretary for the state of Maryland. Since 2015, I've been over at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where I work as professor of the practice in health policy and management, um, and I have some uh, other roles at the school including Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement. And I am not at the moment uh, seeing patients, although I am volunteering as much as I can uh, with the vaccine effort with the Baltimore City Health Department. Excellent. Excellent. Jess or Edward, do you guys have any get to know you questions for Josh? Yeah, I think slightly different question than normal because we asked you some of the more common ones last time, but you uh, have, seems like, uh, expertise and interest that spans multiple sectors, so healthcare policy. What news sources do you use to kind of curate 
your information that you read and how do you how do you get uh, up to date information about different topics well i fa- feel like i'm reading most of the day you know in between different meetings i'm having or catching up at the end um i certainly read a bunch of daily papers new york times washington post wall street journal baltimore sun i look at major medical journals there is a great resource uh called the ncrc the Coronavirus Research Consortium at Johns Hopkins, where they review uh, breaking papers and kind of give their assessment. So I read that pretty regularly. Um, And I use Twitter. I follow a bunch of people who seem to be tied into all kinds of interesting reports coming out. Great. You carry a lot of uh, leadership roles. Um, and so one question we had, I, I think you've shared some advice with us in the past, but but can you give us one piece of advice um, regarding leadership that you've learned over the years? One piece of advice regarding leadership. Um, hmm. I would say that um, it's really important to try not to take things personally. As a leader, I think this is important, particularly now for public health leaders who are getting attacked all the time. But you know that that kind of was getting going as I was in some of my jobs, particularly I think about the Food and Drug Administration. But it's a lot like a doctor in the hospital where the parents are really angry about something happening. You know, they were supposed to get their temperature taken every four hours, but they missed the last one. They came a half hour late. You know. And it's like, well, a half hour doesn't really matter. And the person says, you know, my child's health matters. And people get really upset about things. And they're not necessarily upset at you as a person. And it's really important to be able to see past that and see to the reason people are so angry and try to, in your best way, empathize with them. I think that's very hard. It's very hard when people are really nasty, particularly. But I think it's important, particularly in these moments when There's just so much hatred, negativity, you know, being passed around. That's great advice. You know, in the hospital, those parents who are upset, it's often because they're just so worried about their kids. And it's not because it would take an extra half hour to take the child's temperature. They're they're just really, really afraid. And this is how they're expressing it. And I think when you have that insight, it allows you to engage with them in a different way. I didn't oh, think right. I'd be getting uh, residency advice um, on this particular episode, but this has already come up starting residency. So thanks for saying that. Um, that is helpful to keep in mind. And, you know, it's also more than just fear, but also that lack of control that all of a sudden, you know, when you're a parent in the home, you feel like you have control of, well, <laughs> to a degree. And all of a sudden when you're in the hospital, you know, now it's in the hands of all these nurses and doctors who you may not know and may not have developed that rapport yet. And so that's why it's, it's so important for us to, to be open and to try to put ourselves in the, these parents' shoes. So, All right. Um, so if we want to move on, um, Edward, do you want to start off with sort of our first line of questioning on, and, and sort of where we want to start off here? Sure. So, you know, today's episode is you know going to be about COVID and children and uh, returning to school, but I think we should uh, get some background. And Josh, wondering if you could kind of tell us from your perspective, what is the current state with COVID uh, related to children right now? Where are we? Sure. Well, we're in a 
difficult spot uh, because of the Delta variant, which, as we know, is much more transmissible than the previous versions of the virus and certainly can infect children and, in fact, has been infecting quite a lot of children. I'm looking at one report here. It says that 180,000 child cases were reported in the past week, and we're also seeing record number of hospitalizations around the country. We're seeing uh, children's hospitals being swamped big story about the New Orleans Children's Hospital needing to bring in extra staff to set to expand the ICU. I mean, this is a little bit of the scenario that we were all dreading when you have a pandemic that's affecting children, and it's certainly happening now. And the big question as cases are increasing, serious cases are increasing among kids, is whether the start of school is going to be like pouring an accelerant on transmission among children. So based on that, do you think that that will be the case? Is this one of the things that is high on the list that you think is, is, is this a true fear? Well, if you think about the first phase of the pandemic is being really focused on people who are older because of their extraordinary risk of serious illness, people with chronic conditions, because they face very high risk of hospitalization and even death. The second phase, trying to convince young adults to get vaccinated. You know, we've been in the middle of that for the last few months. The next phase could be kids, you know, how we're dealing with um, the situation affecting kids in schools, the focus on sick kids in the hospital. But truthfully, I don't know. I I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I know that there are a lot of schools that are taking this risk very seriously and are putting a lot of things into place. There are other schools that are not taking this risk as seriously and putting relatively little into place. And so we're going to unfortunately be in the midst of a natural experiment about just how serious Delta is for kids, how disruptive it is to the school environment. And hopefully we can do a little better than last year and learning lessons from that quickly to, you know, come up with a set of best practices that people embrace. So when you're looking at how schools have been addressing this last year, and when we had less information last year, and maybe a little more information this year, do you feel there's been appreciable difference in that approach? Or has, as you say, there are some schools that aren't doing as much, but that's even with more information than we had last year. What What is the difference there and how, how have you sort of perceived that? Well, last year we were advising that it's very important to try to get kids back in school, but it was also very important to try to mitigate the spread of the virus in school. And, you know, I, I had co-authored an article where we were saying, that's why we need resources to improve the school environment, to do testing where we can, to create more space for kids to do a whole bunch of things, including ventilation, that would make it as safe as possible for kids, recognizing the value of of school for kids. And um, what was so frustrating back then is that school systems did not have the resources to be able to do those investments. This year, what we've seen is that, you know, in fact, when schools were able to put in mitigation measures, at least for the previous versions of the virus, it was pretty good. I mean, there was very little transmission in schools. And school systems like New York really studied this well and found that it could be managed. So that's good. And the other good thing is that there's now a lot more resources at the state level, particularly for education. And so we should be in a position where we can at least start with the best practices that were used for the previous version of the virus and see what happens, you know, watching carefully, adjusting as we need, Unfortunately, um, some of the same ideological debates have carried over, and there are some people who are resisting any major uh, mitigation steps in schools and are not 
making resources available to schools to to put them into place. Um, so I'm very worried about those places. So I do think that there are places that haven't learned the lessons and they aren't using the resources. But at the same time, there's just this uncertainty with what's going to happen this fall. And, and, and I do think that a lot of people are planting flags in the ground. It has to be done this way. I do think there's a smart way to start, but we also have to be prepared to pivot. I'm curious, you mentioned, um, you know, a couple of the mitigation efforts that we used last year, and, and that is a great starting point for, for this school year. But with Delta, do we need to be thinking about sort of other sort of interventions we should be doing, you know, remote schooling for certain populations or, or anything different that we should be doing with knowing that Delta is more, more transmissible? Well, I think the biggest one has to do with vaccination because we have access vaccines this year, and the vaccines are very effective against the Delta variant. And so I think it would be great for all the adults to be vaccinated in schools. I think we just see this case report of one teacher reading one book without a mask and like a whole bunch of kids in the class get COVID, including like a quarter of the kids in the back row. It just makes you realize how infectious this is and how important it is to take every advantage against the virus. And, you know, using a vaccine for at least the adults in in the school will really make a difference. So I do think that that, that's certainly a big difference. But, you know, the the basic things that schools can do, I mean, there's a a good list of them. And I'm not sure every school system needs to do all of them. I think the evidence is if you layer on a whole bunch, schools were able to be pretty successful last year. But it's a bit of common sense. And it's a bit of, you know, recognizing the need to dial these up if necessary. Um, I'm just amazed that, for example, friends of mine in different parts of the country, their kids are expected to go to chorus class, you know, and masks optional. Like, that just seems like rolling out the red carpet for viral transmission to me. Yeah, chorus class does seem like one that we could say, let's maybe put a hold on and um, focus on some of the other things for now. Taking a step back just to kind of what we experienced over the past year, there's a new McKinsey and NWEA report that showed that kids are behind and it's not equal. So Latino and black third graders are 15 to 17 percent behind where they were expected to be compared with 9 percent behind for white children. Um, what, what are the implications here going forward and what do we need to do to uh, address them? Well, it's been a terrible year. I mean, this was all like watching a train wreck in slow motion. I mean, you could see that the effects of the mitigation measures generally were affecting communities very differently, and the school measures were no exception. It's just a stunning difference in places between what the public schools were experiencing, for example, and what the private schools were experiencing. I mean, just if you were from another planet, you would just, your head would be spinning if you had a head, I guess. You know, I mean, it's just amazing how many resources were being put into mitigation in private schools and public schools were, you know, hunting to see if they could even find kids in many examples because they couldn't reliably connect up to their classes. And so what you have, because we have a fundamentally unequal education system in this country, is that divide growing worse. And really making a difference for kids' futures, I think we're going to see the impact of this for a while. And we have to be thinking 
in education and beyond education for the kind of investments that are going to be necessary to to dull the impact of what happened. And so this is more than just, first of all, it is like extra tutoring, extra classes, extra educational support, you know, more resources in school, better school facilities and all that. But I also think it's important to think more broadly about all the different cascading, you know, um, harms that affect a lot of children who are low income and children of color. I am impressed, you know, that something that had never really been considered very likely has happened, which is a major expansion in the child tax credit, you know, which is uh, expected to cut child poverty in half, that sort of begins to get at the fundamental needs that kids have. And I think that we have to think about their educational needs, their social needs, their economic future, and have a much more intense series of child investments in this country. That's what it's really going to take, not just remedial classes. Do we know, based on our lessons learned from last year, if there are any specific things that, you know, if we were only have so many limited resources, things that would be the best places to put these resources into? Or is it still, we should try a little bit of everything? Well, I think it may depend a little bit on the situation, but a school system, I think, would be smart to start with CDC recommendations and American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations for masking to try to create distance where they can within classrooms, to uh, put a hold on very high-risk activities like this indoor chorus class I was mentioning, to do testing where they can. And there's a lot of funding for testing in schools that's being made available. And to you know do a ventilation assessment and see what can be done to address that in school buildings to the extent possible. Again, the goal isn't for every single thing to be perfect before one child can move into the school, but to do the things that are within reach as quickly as possible and then, you know, be very careful about watching what happens. I've actually seen a lot of pediatricians advocating for not reopening schools at this point. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are, you know, if we do sort of this multimodal approach, do you think we can safely reopen schools this fall? I think it's important to recognize just how much kids have suffered not being back in school. And, you know, we're not we're having to balance the risks of COVID with the benefits of being in school, which are enormous. And so given that, given the success so many schools had in controlling the virus last year and the addition of vaccination to kind of our, our toolkit, um, I think it's totally reasonable to start with uh, in-person school. But I think you have to watch and see what happens. And we have to just be prepared. So, you know, everybody can draw the line in a different place. I think where the CDC has drawn the line, the American Academy of Pediatrics has drawn the line initially, I think is a very reasonable place to start. So in some specific parts of the country, our colleagues at Cashlack Children's Southeast, for example, are navigating waters that they maybe never could have imagined. So there are you know rules at the governor level saying that mask mandates aren't allowed in schools. So how should pediatricians be navigating a discussion about this with parents? And then how should they be responding in society? Well, this is partly what's made this such a demoralizing moment, because it's a combination of seeing kids desperately ill. I've talked to emergency room doctors in Florida, for example, who say that this is as busy as it gets in a really bad winter. And, you know, it's August. So very, very unusual patterns and getting worse. I just saw the health commissioner of Alabama saying he didn't know how much longer this was sustainable. 
Um, there are just so many, you know, signal flares going up in different parts of the country right now. So you have that just enormous stress combined with the fact that, you know, there are areas where people are shutting down discussion of some of the most effective ways to combat the virus, including vaccination. And that is creating this like really demoralizing moment for so many clinicians. And, you know, the politics of speaking out about protecting yourself and protecting your family and protecting your community are really dismal right now. The people who are chasing after the doctors in the parking lot and screaming, we know where you live after a school board meeting, are getting a lot of attention and feeling emboldened. And the doctors themselves are quite demoralized. And so it's it's a really difficult thing. I certainly think that it's appropriate for clinicians to be expressing their views to patients and to others in the public sphere, to writing letters, testifying, and maybe, you know, being able to join together with people. I think institutions are having a challenge. Like if you're a major pediatric hospital somewhere and you want to uh, call for a much stronger response, but you're afraid of crossing the governor, you know, that's creating some real ethical challenges at this point. But I think ultimately the mission of serving children and keeping children healthy has got to prevail. And pediatricians have that for themselves in such strong um, and deep ways that I do think um, you'll see a lot of doctors speaking out, but it's just going to be frustrating for a while until, um, until we can find our way through this. And, you know, one thing that I would say is it's even more than just pediatricians because, you know, so many physicians are also just parents. And I know my friends who are in internal medicine, anesthesia, emergency medicine, you know, they're going to their school boards, they're, they're attending their school meetings, and, and they're there advocating for our kids. Um, so I, I think that's, that's also not to be uh, taken lightly as well. I appreciate that point, especially since I'm on this podcast with three med peds. Uh, people here. So I, I think that's an important perspective. And um, there are many healthcare professionals, not just doctors, who are making their voice known in a lot of these, these local school boards. And, you know, they're, be, they're getting some success. I mean, this is not the case that every effort here is failing. And I don't want to portray it that way. I've heard from many places that have been able to punch through this, but it is just enormously exhausting and difficult. And you know, one of the ironies is that it may be those physician, nurse, physician assistant, parents who are working so hard to save lives of people in the community who don't have the time to go to these meetings. And so it's, you know, just asking so much of them to have to do this double duty. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that keeps on coming up in my social media is talking about like compassion fatigue and and, uh, you know, taking care of all these patients who um, are unvaccinated or, you know, just so tired of saying the same lines over and over again about trying to convince people to vaccinate. You know, this sort of takes me to um, the next question about sort of vaccination. When we're looking at um, sort of vaccinations and approval of FDA vaccinations for those between 12 and 16 for full approval from the FDA versus just the EUA, what's going on with that and with uh, the vaccination for approval for less than 12? Thank you. These are very common questions that I'm getting a lot and naturally a lot of parents have. So let's start with the question about vaccines for children under 12. Um, there are clinical trials going on, particularly with the mRNA vaccines, that will then need to be submitted to the Food and Drug Administration. Um, the timeline for that is not 
public. There are various ways to guess at that timeline based on what the companies are saying or what occasionally someone will say from the federal government, but we haven't really heard from FDA what the specific timeline is. I think some of the companies have said it'll be mid-fall. Some of the government officials like Dr. Fauci have speculated maybe late fall for an authorization, but we don't know. And it may be that it will depend on what the data show. Um, And obviously, uh, if the studies raise concerns, then people will have to take a look at that and see whether it's possible to do an authorization. I I wouldn't assume anything until we have the data. But when they do have the data, then the agency can move pretty quickly. I will just pause here and say that in not saying that much about the timeline for the studies, the FDA is generally doing what it usually does, which is not say much and leave the communications (laughs) to the companies or to others. Um, This is not, in my view, the most helpful practice for the agency right now. And I've certainly been quoted um, asking for a little bit more transparency at this point, because it's just of such public interest. And I think it would actually help the agency in its work with the public to be able to show that it has approached this question thoughtfully. The problem the agency faces is that when it doesn't say much, then people project often their worst fears on the agency. So you have people saying, oh, the the FDA is being way too cautious. I don't know whether they're being way too cautious. It really depends on what the facts are. We don't really know them. So I think um, other people are saying the FDA is being pressured to move more quickly. Well, I don't know if that's true either. And, And I think when you don't have the agency really explaining itself, it opens the door to contradictory assumptions being made uh, by different people. So I, I do think it would be great for the FDA to be more forthcoming about this. I'm sure that people there are working hard to try to A, get all the evidence and B, um, make decisions as quickly as possible with the right evidence. But I also think that if more people understood where things uh, were at the moment, people would be more understanding and the FDA would be in a better position. I, I guess my, my question is sort of, what is the, in, in a typical way of, of approval, like what, what is a typical timeline for approval? Because if part of the timeline is actually just the, the company getting the data to the FDA, once it's there at the FDA, what should one expect for, you know, I guess we don't know until they tell us, obviously, but what, what's a typical timeline for FDA to have a decision after getting data? And does, does that get sped up at all? So this is an extraordinary situation, given that we have a pandemic, and the FDA has behaved like it's an extraordinary situation in terms of the review. So you saw the review of the original emergency use authorization applications in just a couple weeks with a public advisory committee as part of that review. Um, so there's nothing that would keep the agency from being able to move that quickly when it has the data, but the studies are ongoing. So there's nothing the FDA really can do at the moment until the data is available. So I, I don't think that there's this long lag that people should worry about after the study's done and people are just waiting for its number to come up in the queue. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but at the same time, I think the agency could be a little bit more forthcoming about what the timeline is for this to happen so people could you know, be prepared for when to hear the news and not be anxious that either the FDA is moving way too slow for the wrong reasons or way too fast for the wrong reasons. It would just help uh, in, my, in my mind. You also asked the question about licensure for uh, the vaccine. And so for, for kids 12 and older, because um, the Pfizer vaccine was just licensed for 16 and up, 
That is another data review. It's based on more safety data than the original emergency use authorization, longer follow-up really uh, for safety. And um, I understand that the companies are going to be submitting for that, but have not done so yet. So I think the full license for kids 12 to 16 is also a little bit into the future. How much into the future? I don't know. And that's an area also where I think both the company and the agency could be a little bit more specific to give people a sense of what's going to happen. I do hear people say, whether it's in the media or questions directly to me, this is a pandemic. What's what's the big holdup? Let's just speed it up and give full licensure to over 12. What are the costs and benefits of just of skipping steps here? Well, the concept of licensure is that there's something that needs to be decided to give a license. So if you say, you know, let's just give a license, then you're kind of erasing the concept of licensure. So I don't really think that's a good answer um, or, you know, a, a very effective line of questioning. The vaccines benefits outweigh the risk for kids 12 to 16. That's why it's been authorized for emergency use. Um, there is a set of standards for licensure that need to be met in order to get the license. Otherwise, there's really not much of a point in having a license. People will say, well, it's just the same as emergency use authorization. And they would be right if you didn't have any extra standards. So I don't think that just changing the definition of what licensure is really accomplishes that much. Um, what we need is the data to be submitted and the agency to move quickly and hopefully people to appreciate the timeline. But the good news is there is a vaccine that's safe and effective um, for kids 12 and older um, that, that people can have. I think probably the bigger impact right now is for under 12, where there is no vaccine that's available. And um, again, there, the timeline would be very helpful, I think, for everybody to understand. So certainly the conversation uh, regarding vaccines for kids under 12 is coming up a lot um, in the clinic and in the hospital. I'm curious, you know, we don't have the vaccine yet for that age group, but is there stuff we should be chatting with parents or counseling them on to prepare them for when that vaccine is available and, and maybe get ahead of some of the uh, vaccine hesitancy in the community? I think an important thing right now would be to explain the fact that we don't have a vaccine because it's being studied pretty, pretty intensely and that we're going to have a lot of data upon which to make recommendation for kids. And, you know, I would say I don't know whether I'm going to be recommending a vaccine until I know what the data show and what the you know smart people who are going to look at that data are going to conclude. And if there is a clear evidence of safety and effectiveness, I, I will recommend that vaccine to my patients. I think that's what I would say as, as a pediatrician. But at this point, I, I don't think it's necessarily a good idea because it's not true to say it's, it's, you know, I'm sure that we'll have one and we'll get it to you right away and it's going to work. Because until the data is in, we don't know. And that's what I was saying even about adolescence until the vaccine became available. Now, the adolescent conversation is happening a lot and is complicated, of course, by the fact that there is um, an adverse effect that's been identified, particularly for young boys, which is myocarditis. And there, the CDC, I think, has done a, a reasonably good job trying to explain that it's a low risk and Almost everyone appears to be recovering pretty well from it. And that the disease of COVID, which is, of course, the comparison here, also can cause myocarditis and other serious cardiac problems. So, you know, you're comparing not 
the situation of no COVID, no vaccine versus vaccine. It's really the comparison of COVID, no vaccine versus vaccine. Um, the way I think about it with the Delta variant, it makes the case for vaccination so much stronger because I think eventually everyone's going to be exposed to this virus. And the question is whether you would want to be exposed having been vaccinated versus not being vaccinated. And the small risk of myocarditis is much more easy to appreciate in the context of the alternative being having your child sick and possibly quite sick with COVID. I imagine that might be a similar conversation with parents of smaller kids. I mean, when it gets authorized, it's going to be authorized on the basis of studies that involve thousands of children. But there are millions of children in this country. And so people may say, well, is there a rare risk? And that's partly the case for any vaccine that gets licensed. It's always studied initially on thousands of kids, and then it's given to millions of kids. And sometimes you do find very, very rare things. So the trade-off is between the risk of COVID and its complications and the rare risk of a vaccine. You've kind of narrowed the risk to if there are risks, it's very rare by the time of an authorization. And you're comparing that to what we know about COVID. And that'll be the discussion that I think clinicians are going to need to have with patients. So, and we talked earlier about how vaccinating adults is important for the health of children. We were talking about in the context of parents. Over the past 18 months, have you learned any new pearls or upon reflecting thought about key ways to approach people who are just super uncertain about getting vaccinated, super hesitant for their own reasons? Well, I've been out vaccinating uh, about once a week, uh, maybe once every other week with the Baltimore City Health Department for the last few months. And as the time has gone on, I'm seeing more people who are hesitant initially and now making a decision to come in. And so, you know, I'll ask them, what was it that pushed them over the line to get vaccinated? And what has struck me the most is that people don't say, you know, I looked at that MMWR article a second time, and it really um, made the case for me. It They, they don't even say, um, I just, until Delta, a couple people mentioned Delta, but they practically don't talk about COVID very much at all. The answer almost to a person was the name of someone. And so I would say, you know, what made you get vaccinated? But they heard that as who? Why are you getting vaccinated? Who are you getting vaccinated for? So someone would say like, well, my daughter says I need to get vaccinated. Or my boyfriend says I have to get vaccinated. Or my job says I have to get vaccinated. But it's often a person and it's somebody that they care about. And I had an interesting conversation with a young man who came in with his friend who had no intention of getting vaccinated. And I asked him, hey, you want to get vaccinated while you're here? He's like, oh, I didn't bring my ID. It's like, no problem. We can still vaccinate you. And he was like, well, um, I don't think so. I really don't think so. And, and instead of starting in with him on the risk of COVID, I actually said to him, who would you get vaccinated for if you were to get vaccinated? I'm just curious. And without hesitation, he said, my mom. He was about 20. And I said, oh, tell me about your mom. And I got a whole bunch of details of her, the mom and her medical problems and the concerns he has for her. And I was like, well, that, that is, you are absolutely right. You would be protecting your mom. And then we just sort of sat there and I said, well, some people are hesitant to get vaccinated because even though they know that it's a good idea, they're just afraid that something will go wrong. And then they will have the responsibility of what went wrong. Like it'll be on their head. And he looked at me and said, that's exactly it. I, I don't know what I could do if, if something happened. It would have been completely my fault to get vaccinated. And we sat there and, you know, just sort of said, look, 
you have the power to protect your mom. You could stand up and go over there and really protect your mom. And I really emphasized building on what he said and who he wanted to help um, the benefits of vaccination and that the risks were, were very, very small. And he did it. You know, that was my success for the day. But the I do, I have come to believe that while we're thinking about data, people who are deciding to get vaccinated are thinking about others. And I do think that if you are in clinic and you come across someone who is vaccinated, encouraging them to talk to people in their families uh, or neighborhoods who are not vaccinated is a good thing to do because it may be because of their their words, their word, they may be in a better position than a source of authority in some ways to be persuasive. Wow. I think that might have been like the greatest pearl that I've heard in weeks about COVID approaching COVID deliberation and hesitancy. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was that was great. I think we're, you know, we're we're getting to um a, you know time around now. Is there anything else that you would like to to talk about? Any other specific points or pearls you want to let us know about? Well, I would say that pediatricians have always been my heroes. You know, I know I'm I'm only talking to half of your identities as med peds um, doctors, <laughs> but um, I I've seen you know pediatricians are the lowest paid medical specialty. They are the ones who are going to immediately get on the floor with their patients and play around with them. And they're most likely to um, be involved in policy and public health. I recently found out they're the most likely to be registering people to vote in their clinics. And their clinical skills, patience, and endurance is going to be tested, I think, perhaps more than ever um, in their careers over the next few weeks and months. And so, you know, I, I do think that if it is the case that this turns into a pandemic with a focus on children over the next few months, it's going to be a real moment for uh, the pediatric field, for allied health professionals in the pediatric field, um, because there's just going to be so much at stake. And some of the mistakes that the country has made um, will have terrible consequences if they, they can't, be, can't be fixed for kids. And we're really going to have to do our best to be successful. Excellent. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids! Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter at our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do this, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A huge thanks to our producer for this episode, Edward Cordy, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Jessica Hain. I've been Edward Cordy. And this has been Chris the Chew Manchu. Thank you. Good night, good morning, and afternoon. Have a good one. <laughs>